Hi, this is Billy Barr, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to episode 3.18 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Man, it seems like it is the winter that can't stop and won't stop. Powder skiing the last couple weekends in May has got me pretty fired up. And man, is it nice to be able to get in the dual sport days of riding dirt and snow, followed by barbecuing with a cold 10-barrel beer in hand. I sure do love those cold winter days, but springtime, you're alright. Speaking of 10-barrel beer and barbecuing, check out 10-barrel's new 2019 summer seasonal beer release. I'm talking about Swill, the American Rattler. What's an American Rattler, you say? Well... It's the perfect blend of American sour ale with multiple layers of citrus. The perfect refreshing wind down to a day of skiing volcanoes. Chill with swill. In between your biking and skiing missions, check out one of the 10 barrel brew pubs. If beer isn't quite your thing, or even if it is, they're serving up some great food featuring made from scratch items that are sourced locally. You can find a pub in Bend, Portland, Boise, Denver, or San Diego. Thanks to Ten Barrel for keeping the podcast going. Appreciate you guys. I have to be honest, I had kind of forgotten that I had this next interview in the archives. I dusted it off and listened to it last week before editing. It's a great one. And while Billy Barr isn't specifically an avalanche researcher per se, he's been living in the midst of many avalanche paths for decades. As he says, the weather determines what he does every day, especially in the winter. And so for the last 45 years, Billy Barr has been recording weather observations from his home in Gothic, Colorado. In 1975, he started communicating significant weather and avalanche information to the CAIC, as well as the Crested Butte Avalanche Center. Billy has a wealth of knowledge of his local area, and his weather records are being used by researchers that are studying climate change. It was a pleasure sitting down with Billy and hearing about his life and work in Gothic, Colorado. Tune in, you might just learn something about avalanches, weather, and maybe even cricket. Here we go with Billy Barr. Billy, can you describe uh, Gothic for us? The town or the mountain? The town and the mountain, and the, this area. The town of Gothic was founded in 1879. It was a mining town that lasted about six years. at the time. As a, during the mining days, it was quite large, had up to 5,000 people there. Um, it was mostly seasonal, a lot of tents and stuff, but it was year round. Uh, the mines were up Copper Creek, the Sylvanite mine. That was the big one. Everything died in the mid eighties and the town disappeared. Um, in 1928, RMBL was founded by a, what is now Western, uh, uh, Colorado University. They just changed their name a month ago. So I keep 
trying to remember. It used to be Western State. Western State College, then Western State Colorado University, now Western Colorado University. And RMBL is? Not affiliated with that. But that's the Rocky Mountain Biological Biological Laboratory. Yeah. A a professor at at Western uh, in 1928 was familiar with this area and started buying out the town site, which was worthless. And there was an old person who lived in Crested Butte but was out in Gothic every summer named uh, Judd. I forget his first name. But anyway, he owned a lot and he knew people who did. So he sold them or he got the lab in touch and the lab gradually built up, built, bought up the whole town site, used the old buildings that were remaining and, and created the biological field station, which uh, this was its 90th summer, I think. 91st, really, 90th year. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's gotten bigger and it's changed a lot. Um, I worked there, but it had nothing to do with my weather or avalanche stuff. I do accounting and I've done other stuff there, plumbing, electrical, phone lines, stuff like that um, over the years. Um, what the lab does is basic field research. So it's taking a biology department from a university, putting it out in the field. The lab provides housing and meals, research support, and and the like classes, coursework classes for undergraduates um, and beginning graduate students. It's uh, the students are wonderful. I mean, uh, it's the reason I still work there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're 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 smart, interested, you know, uh, very intelligent, outgoing, outdoorsy. So it's it's a nice place to be. Uh, that that's you know that's my social time is summer. Right. Because nobody lives there in the winter. There's three few. caretakers this year. There's a couple. Christine Alex, this is her fourth winter. And then another uh, person, Alex, this is his second winter. Mm-hmm. So this winter there'll be four of us. They're officially caretakers. Uh, this land is mine, not the labs. I bought it from a rancher in the 70s and traded it to the lab for land right on their their border so that I'm far away from that and they don't have me in town um so yeah so uh so I'm not officially a caretaker um yeah and then wintertime I pretty much stay to myself for the most part I'll see them once a week or so Um, and you you don't have a vehicle no, I ski to the trailhead, leave my skis there. I'm not going to tell you where. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, take the bus to uh, Crested View and then the bus from there to Gunnison and, and the bus back. So you get your, your supplies and food that way yeah, in the yeah. wintertime. I have a place in Gunnison, which I rarely stay in, but it's there for when uh, I get old or if I got sick and stuff. I spent six nights there last winter. But I go down there, I ski the town, I do my errands, I spend the night, I get up the next morning and come back. I'm hoping to spend more time there because I actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice break, which is ironically, ironic, I was going to say a nice break from winter, but Gunnison's winters are cold. Yeah. Uh, but it's a nice break from all the snow and from, you know, so I'm hoping to spend a little bit more time there. And by a little bit, I mean ski in and spend two nights instead of one. So I have a day there to just hang out. Or and you'll be, you'll still be able to get your weather data 
from the cameras that you're putting up, right? Yeah, I should be able to get the snow depth from the camera, the temperatures from the instrumentation, which I can log online and get, Mm -hmm. and new snowfall from uh, the, the snowboard camera enough so that I can at least update the weather page. And then the caretakers, if I'm not there and there's snow, will ski up and do the actual measurements. Now, I was talking to them yesterday. In three years, uh, the caretakers have had to ski up there five times, meaning, you know, they would do it twice a day. So just a couple of days. I usually only go to town when the weather's good. Mm. And um, so for the most part, nothing has changed much. But yeah, I can access everything, but the, um, the water equivalent and even that I can get when that precipitation bucket gets repaired. Right. Um, so it's pretty much the same, but yeah, hopefully someday I'd be able to do it all remotely if I couldn't be out here. So this is a pretty complete data set over the last 45 years. Well, this was the 45th starting 45th, now. Yeah. Uh, the first couple of years I was here, I had to throw the data out because it was, uh, it was so scientifically useless that mm. it was, and you hang a thermometer out in the sun, it's going to get hot. Right. It doesn't get 70 here in the winter. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it would. Um, the way I started it, I got out here in 1972 uh, studying um, water quality, water chemistry in the river, and that was just for the summer, and I didn't want to leave, so I moved into that uh, old mining shack. It was 8 by 10 feet and had... Um, a bed and a table and a cook stove. That was pretty much it. Because um, all I had was a kerosene lamp, uh, it was limited what I could do, obviously, back in the early 70s. There was, I I didn't have phone or anything like that, obviously, no internet and stuff, and I had a radio. Uh, So I started recording weather records, and uh, out here, that is really important because the weather dominates everything. I mean, everything I do in winter depends on the weather, whether I go to town, whether I stay inside and so on. And after about five years, I started comparing the current winter I was in at that time to the past years. And all of a sudden, just recording the weather started to be more entertaining in that I can say, oh, this winter has this much on the ground as compared to the last for and then as the years went on it got more difficult to do it because it was all hand look up the records write it down get a calculator uh but there was more information to go by and then when computers came out um uh then i got uh super calc which no one knows of but it was a precursor to excel and I started putting the data on there and still didn't do anything with it until uh, somebody else uh, noticed that I had it. And then, you know, I've been doing it that way since then. Um, pretty much the same time of day, every day, the same methods, the same location, although the technology has changed. Obviously, at first with temperatures, I had a, a thermograph. So it went around and it recorded and I'd read the graph off and, and fill in those numbers. And I've used different thermometers over the year. And now I use these Campbell Scientific and Davis instruments for, for temperature. So it's changed. I don't know if that would change results very much. Um, but anyway, um, 
so I've been doing it for the most part the same way for all those years. In 1975, Art Mears, who uh, has been an Avalanche consultant since then and still is, was a caretaker at the lab, and he started working for the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. And he recorded uh, just down in Gothic, about uh, less than a half mile from here, uh, the snow stuff. And after, and then the avalanches. Well, he did it one year, and after that, I took it over. So I started recording avalanche information starting in the winter of 76, 77, which was a good winter to start because there was no snow. Mm. So there wasn't much going on. And I did that every year until around either 210 or 2012. I forget when. But um, by that point, you had the Crested Butte Avalanche Center, Snowtail Stations, and a more widespread network. Uh, and my information just wasn't that important. And they could get it without me. Uh, so I stopped doing it on a regular basis. What I do now is I report to both CB Avalanche Center and the CAIC on mornings when we get significant snow, because I will do a preliminary check at about 5, 5.15 in the morning, and I do my daily at 7 o'clock. But that way it gives them a little bit of information while it's still dark and a little bit, uh, it's not just Snowtail says it snowed 12 inches. I can write and say it snowed 12 inches, but you know, eight of it came between three and six in the morning. It's stuff that they may be able to use a little bit more in their forecasting. And more accurate densities, perhaps. Right, well, you know, manual, and you know, when I was, when I was getting old, which was every day now, uh, I wanted to get information uh, that I could maybe replace me, me, me with, especially because, you know, I'm not going to be here another 45 years. And so um, I contacted, you know, the snow studies, the avalanche centers, uh, um, the weather bureaus, everyone I possibly knew and said, what's the best best way to measure snow. And they all came back with manually, do it yourself. So that's where I'm still at. Um, um, so what I'm thinking now, though, is with the avalanches, the reason it got so difficult is going out at seven in the morning when it's ice cold and skiing up valley and writing all this stuff down and writing it all up. It just got to be too much. Well, um, when I put in this second live camera, uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to look at all the avalanche paths that I used to have to go out and look at from inside the house or from the Caribbean if I'm so <laughs> lucky. I won't be there. It's too hot, but <laughs> it's a nice idea. And so I'm thinking of starting it up again just as a kick, just to, yeah. you know, I have the problem is because I have the old charts. They don't even use it. They don't use the same coding system, the same anything. So I'd have to figure out how they record avalanches anymore. And did you just come up with that system yourself? No, no, no. The Colorado Art? Avalanche okay. Information yeah. did. Knox Williams, Nick mm -hmm. Logan back in the early 70s mm -hmm. when they set that up. And that's what I use. You know, the sizes are one, two, three, four, five. Mm -hmm. And the starting zones are A, B, and C. And nowadays there's all these numbers. And, and so I, I don't um when I have to learn something else. But anyway, that's where the avalanche stuff came from. Yeah. And they are extensive records over a large number of slide paths, but they've they haven't been done in 
either six or eight years. Did you name some of these slide paths? Well, I or? named them all yeah. because at the time, that's what you did. You had number 57, I called it Bellevue Bowl. Uh-huh. And at the time, I was reading Lord of the Rings. And so all the ones in Wrestler's Gulch are named after things in Lord of the Rings and um, so on. Um, Have those names stuck with the local ski community? No, no, no one knows them but me. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I mean, they're not real names. Yeah. Um, basically, what I have uh, over long term is daily low temperatures, high temperatures, new snow water equivalent, and snowpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I also have sightings of cloud cover and wind, but they're things like partly cloudy, mostly cloudy, uh, light wind, moderate wind, and so on, which scientifically is of no use, but it's, you know, I have it. I just mm-hmm. I haven't even put it onto a spreadsheet or anything because you know, there's not a lot I can do with it. But you can do a lot with the information that I, that I have, temperatures over, you know, 45 years, uh, snow depths, and and snow density and where that becomes interesting is from that you can take first day of permanent snowpack last day of permanent snowpack uh so you get the amount of days over over winter when there was snow on the ground at at a given site obviously Mm -hmm. changes um and the number of record highs and lows in each winter uh average uh monthly lows and highs, how they compared to now, uh, days with temperature above freezing, which I didn't think much about until a couple of years ago. Somebody was writing an article about how warming temperature affects ski areas. And obviously, freezing point's important, uh, both in making snow and holding snow and so on. And so I, I started to look at, take just those simple five categories, and you can get a lot of interesting um, information uh, from them. So um, that's how it started out. And it just scribbles in a book. And I recorded everything I saw any mm-hmm. animals, animal tracks, birds, whatever. Um, uh, over time, uh, it started getting built up. And then a, a researcher at RMBL, who does David Inouye, who does plant phenology, started doing that about the same time I did. And so his plant information corresponded very well in terms of time with my weather data. And as it turns out over time, his plant behavior activities also corresponds very well with what's happening. Plants flowering earlier um, uh, um, and so on like that. Um, So um, he started using it and then other researchers started using it. And then um, I put it on its gothicwx.org on that weather page, and other people started looking at that. So it became disseminated a little bit, um, but the information given current scientific um, studies of sorts, or basically the end of the world as we know it, uh, is that the data over 40-some years this isn't 400 years or 4,000, but over 40 years shows a really well-defined trend. I mean, it's not it's not uh, an individual winter uh, uh, where you can have a very dry winter or a very 
cold winter or a very hot winter. And that's the winter. That's the weather patterns. It can be caused by other things, ocean temperature, currents and stuff. But it's one winter. It's not, you can't really surmise anything other than what that winter was. Over time, over 44 years, there's enough of certain trends that you can see that would make you think that things are changing. And given the industrialization of the world, given what we're doing to the atmosphere, carbon dioxide uh, densities and stuff, uh, you can make assumptions using that. And the, the things I have seen is um, um, a third of our record high temperatures have been in the last three or four years, half, more than half just since 2010, more than half of the record lows have been in the first 10 years I did this. Um, snow densities have increased greatly. The amount of days of snow on the ground has decreased substantially. Things like that over a period of time uh, start to show a pattern. And the patterns all grow together, and that is it's warming up. I mean, uh, and it affects a number of different things. So that's the trends I've seen. I did not keep weather records looking for anything. It's too bad because I don't have records of when uh, the first trees leaved out, when the last, when the trees changed colors, um, a, a lot of other information. But I also had no goal, no direction. So this num these numbers aren't being used to prove anything. They just so happen that they may. But um, I can be accused of being uh, an idiot or of doing things wrong. But if I did them wrong, I did them wrong the same way every single year. So the data has some validity. I, I was accused uh, on a uh, uh, on this this National Geographic video that was it was it was. Uh, not them, but it was on their page. Somebody wrote and said, no wonder he's uh, uh, lived alone so long. He's so ugly. No woman would ever like him. Oh, my goodness. No, that's a good data point. <laughs> keep track of that. I found it entertaining, actually. Some of them I didn't, but that one was funny. Um, but, uh, well, Billy, you've also been called the, the snow guardian and accidental captain of climate change. Kind of like, what do you think of those titles? Uh that's fine. I don't. I don't know what I'm guarding, uh, mm. and I don't know what I'm really a captain of. Uh, I was out here, and I lived out here, and I live a certain type of life, which just happened to, I suppose you could say, luckily, involve recording data. When I was mm -hmm. a kid, I did baseball statistics. Mm. I mean, it was just you like numbers. I like numbers. So that's how I ended up doing accounting. Or phone line work is actually similar to numbers, a zillion different color pairs of lines and mm. stuff. Um, so I didn't really do anything. I just happened to be here and recorded that kind of information, which turned out to be helpful in some ways. Uh, so I don't really uh, care anyway what somebody labels the way I live or what I do as long as there's a validity behind it. The whole hermit, I don't care. If somebody's definition of a hermit is someone who lives alone, yes. If it's someone who's non-social, I mean, I don't shut up. <laughs> so it's kind of like in the summer, you know. So 
that doesn't matter. The things I don't like is when something is misrepresented mm. or is not true. Mm-hmm. So uh, I suppose you could say, no, I don't know. I was going to say, I suppose you could say I'm guarding the snow because I'm providing data on it, but that's not doing it. I'm not doing that. Somebody else is They're just mm. using what I had. Well, it's a tremendous resource for these researchers and, and, like you said, brings validity to the trends that are happening over time, right? What are some trends that you've seen with the weather and then avalanche cycles in this area? Uh, well, the weather, I'd say one of the one of the uh, the more interesting trends is the density of the snow. That affects a lot of things. It affects the ground cover, the way the snow. Uh, 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 sets up uh, the way it 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 melts away early in the year, the way it it melts uh, away early in in the spring. Early in the year, I mean, instead of it being snow, it's rain, or we get snow and it melts away, and in the spring it melts away earlier. So it it, it changes the environment more. Uh, it, it it affects animals some to it, their benefit, some to not. Um, and in terms of avalanches, uh, we're getting, I would say, with the warmer weather, earlier wet, wet events, uh, a denser snowpack, uh, which I don't know exactly what it would do. I would say that, um, uh, denser snow might set up originally a little, well, during a storm, uh, less stable. You get a mm-hmm. snowpack and wet, heavy snow, but then it might set up quicker because it, you know, it stabilizes quicker. Uh, but then also you would have possibly more uh, heat transfer through the snowpack and therefore more crystallization. Um, uh, and I haven't studied that, but uh, I would think that it could stabilize it or destabilize it depending on, you know, how it sets up. But it's a change from you know the 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 way it it has been over a long period of time. So I think the density will play into it. The dust is a huge difference. And mm. I don't have information on that, but normally when we get down to about four or five feet of snow on the ground in its spring, we lose about an inch a day until we get down to about a uh, um, oh say half a meter or so, like twenty inches somewhere in that range. Uh, and then it goes very quickly because it's rotten, it heats up, and it melts. If we get a good dust layer on the snow when there's um, around uh, four feet or so, it goes two to four inches a day. So it just it just takes off. I mean, it melts really, really fast. And so instead of going another month at an inch a day, it goes two, three weeks, and it's down to next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that, and I have records of the snow stuff, but I don't have records that say it did that because there was dust on the ground. Uh, again, that's something that I never thought of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that makes a huge difference. And, and are those dust layers or weather events correlated to specific weather patterns, weather coming in from a specific direction? Well, I would say for this area, the southwest, uh-huh. and in dry years. Yeah. Or years when snow doesn't hold in the southwest because mm-hmm. you have bare ground and you have wind. <clears throat> And wind carries really far, and uh, 
So you, you know, you just get a strong wind, and the ground turns red brown. Yeah. And if it's not followed by any snow, uh, it just starts to melt. If it's followed by new snow, then the new snow reflects the sun. It doesn't melt as quickly until it melts down to that. But in essence, that heavy dust dirt layer becomes your ground mm -hmm. and uh, just a ground layer. So the snow melts off that, it absorbs heat and melts. I think that that'll play a big thing in, uh, in something that is extremely important, I think, which is high altitude snowpack for the summer because that provides water for the whole Southwest from here. If you get dust, it melts faster. If you have dry weather, it melts faster. If you have warm late falls, you don't have that snowpack or early springs. Um, you know, this year was a perfect example, a dry winter followed by a dry summer, there was no snow high up. Mm -hmm. And so the river's down to basically, you know, you can drain it with a eight ounce cup. You know, that's a metaphor. <laughs> right. Um, so those are big differences, you know, and it's kind of like water is the most important resource in this country. People go after money and gold. You can't buy water. I suppose you could get bad water and distill it and drink it. But uh, the fact is, is that water is used for everything. And it's a really important resource. And we're affecting that as well as, you know, as other things with, with the climate. Um, and so that that's, I think, a big deal mm -hmm. uh, related to snow, snowfall. Sure. Because uh, people don't think about it in summer that most of their water is coming from high altitude snow and yep. storage, which is underground from snowmelt. Mm -hmm. Billy, what have you seen in terms of trends of rain on snow events getting earlier in the season? From a personal level, I, I, I love them <laughs> because by spring I'm so sick of snow that since <laughs> no one gives me an opinion, well, should we have it or not? I actually like them. But yeah, um, we had, in the first 40 years I was here, we had rain once in March. Now we've had it three of the last four years. Mm. So that makes a big difference too. Rain obviously melts the snow way faster. I think we've had, I should have looked that up uh, if it's... Um, yeah, no, it's 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 March, I think, because April we do get rain. Mm -hmm. It could be April, um, but we always Have get rain in May. In February? No, no, no. Yeah, uh, February has turned hot. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah, I wish I could look that up because I'm a little vague on it right now. But it was it was, I think it was March. No, it's March. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so. One in 40 years and three in the last four years. Um, that may or may not be a trend. I don't know. Um, but yeah, rain is another thing that, I mean, it melts. Not only does rain melt the snow really quickly, it causes floods. Because mm -hmm. you're not only getting precipitation, but it's bringing with it all the other stuff. Right. It also pulses through the snow. If you have anything in the snow, um, any acidity and stuff that would normally trickle out and be neutralized, it washes it through. Mm. And so um, 
Uh, and essentially into the water table. Oh, yeah, into the water table, into the rivers, yeah. and so on. Uh, so from a water quality standpoint, you'd rather have a slow melt. You want a slow, slow melt uh, for a lot of different reasons, because mm. you don't get these pulses, mm -hmm. and because it just allows you to have that much same amount of water available, but over a longer period of time. Sure. Uh, and, you know, as we build uh, uh, lawns in, in Arizona, that's where the water is going, you know, and there's a limited amount. I mean, look at what the development in the Southwest. People want to live in warm areas and you need water. You don't really need Kentucky bluegrass, but, but that's where the water goes. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Um, Billy, can you recount some significant avalanche events or avalanche cycles? Any any of them stand out in your mind? I'm sure that you've seen. Well, the one I got called in stands out in my mind. Okay, what happened there? Well, I was. It's ironic. Uh, Snodgrass Mountain had run, uh -huh. and so there was bear. When was this? Oh God, eighty something. What time? Six. What month? You think? Uh, spring. Spring, it was a spring slide, yeah. yeah. April, March, March, I think it was. Uh, and so I skied to it with one of the caretakers and we walked up it because it was bare ground. And the slide next to it, we were about two thirds of the way up and the slide next to it ran and funneled right over and just nailed us. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there was a lot of snow and, and we got popped out because spring slides tend to tumble and they will toss you back up towards the top again. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember that one. It, it was only a, a, a well, what we call at the time a, a size three, which was a, a, a full running zone, top to bottom, but not huge. Sure. That one I remember. Um, there were uh, uh, there was one that ran off Gothic Mountain that ran down the valley out of its running zone across the river and then right through an RMBL cabin, almost um, all the way to the road. Well, no, not that one. That same slide area actually, uh, not that long ago, ran off Gothic, ran across the river, back up the other side, and across the road, and then up the hill towards private cabins um, south of Gothic. But it didn't. Uh, it it stopped starting to go up the hill. The air blast actually reached most of the way up towards those cabins. Um, a number of ones out of this cirque just on the north end of Gothic Mountain have run pretty big and they dam up the river and I have the, had until this year these underwater generators in the river and all of a sudden they stopped working because mm. there was no water and it just dammed up the river which was kind of neat looking I mean all of a sudden you had this lake behind you know and for a couple of days it took a while for the snow to melt through uh, one year it made this kind of big pond through these trees and then it drained out and the trees had formed this ice layer. So there was like almost this ice roof attached to the trees well above any water because the mm -hmm. water drained out. That was kind of neat looking. And then uh, they put in um, a new outhouse just up Valley about five years ago and that exact same winter a slide came out of that same cirque. And it went so big it buried the outhouse. I thought it crushed it because it was gone. Like Turns a forest service style? Yeah. Yeah, in a vault toilet. Yeah, and I thought it buried it. I thought it crushed it because it was gone, but all it did was stop there and bury it. Huh. And you could just see the vent pipe sticking out, and then it melted out, and it was fine. 
Um, so those are the ones that immediately come to mind. Um, there was some up valley that were really big that just wiped out whole areas of trees that hadn't been, I mean, good-sized trees, so they hadn't gone anywhere for a while. And then some on the way to town that would go down, cross the road, go across the meadow, and just go down into the river. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever been skiing in a town when when an avalanche you know cycle is going on or you said I, I you, haven't you haven't no i uh have a probably overly paranoid a f- fear of getting caught in one uh other people Seems have rational. done dumb things yeah well it's it's logical uh makes me a little more careful but uh people have come close mm. you know uh and a lot of people bring snowmobiles up here in the wintertime. No, this no. valley is non-motorized. Okay. Thank goodness. Um, that would change That would change things. A lot, because with a snowmobile, they make a trail for people in conditions that are not safe, that a machine yeah. can fly through, sure. and other people trudge through. Do you, But you do get some backcountry skiers up here? Yeah, from the uh, 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 up to the town of Gothic, there's a lot. In, mm-hmm. in, in good, well, good or dry, I should say. Weather conditions. There's people out here all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes for a bad track. Mm. Uh, it gets trashed out pretty badly. Uh, but after a storm, I hope someone comes. But of course, no one does because they don't want to break trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't break trail anymore. I say, although I did once last year, it just too much work. Yeah. Um, yeah, we get a lot of ski traffic as far as there. From there up valley, not much at all. Uh-huh. In the springtime, a little bit more. I mean, w- once the road melts out, can you? There must be snow up high that people can access. Oh yeah, on once skis. the road melts out, people drive up, or, mm-hmm. or even in the fall before the roads close, people drive up here. Um, uh, either drive up and ski, or drive up with their snowmobiles because while the road is open, you can use them. Mm. So until the county closes the gate, the road is officially open. Mm. Uh, and people will go um, drive up and then ski up. I mean, you could probably ski up Valley pretty pretty okay now. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't. Right. On north-facing slopes up there. Because our snow got somewhat deep for October. Mm-hmm. And now it's, of course, melting away. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, now. What was the total snow depth last year? Or uh, total snow accumulation, I should say. Uh, we had 191 inches of snow last winter. The the driest winter before this that I knew would never, ever be beat because nothing's come close was 76-77 winter, which was 186 and a half. So the difference was four and a half inches of snow. On the other hand, we've had five winters that had more water than last winter, even though it was the second least snow because mm-hmm. the snow was dense. Mm-hmm. And so it was... A dry winter either way, but there was a lot less snow um, than there was a lot less water. Although still, you know, 44 winters, it was the fifth um, least amount of water. It's still dry. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, yeah, last winter, the deepest it got last winter was, I think, three and a half feet, just over a meter. Uh, 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 and um, only one winner, the 76 77 winner, ever had uh, uh, a deepest snowpack less than that. Mm-hmm. 
And again, part of that has to do with the lack of snow, and part of it has to do with the snow is very dense, so it didn't build up that much. Right. Billy, do you like looking at weather forecasts, or are you more of a window forecaster? No, I love looking at them, but I have no idea. I mean, I can't predict the weather. Yeah. Uh, but I, I like looking at them all the time because uh, whereas recording snow records what I live in, the weather forecast records or, or, or says what may or may not be coming. Mm-hmm. So then I look at all different ones too, especially if it's getting close to when I want to go to town. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What are some of your favorites? You look at models or? Uh, well, you know, in the winter, I get them from the Colorado Avalanche mm-hmm. Information Center. And from NOAA, out of the Grand Junction, they're the ones I look at the most. I look at weather underground, and there's one that I continuously forget its name, Snowscape, Snow something. Do you mm. know what it is? I don't Snow know. something. It's basically geared towards uh, mountain area ski. Yeah. Uh, I forget what it's called. The, the caretakers told me about it. But I tend to look mostly at um, for forecasting um, um the uh, uh, Avalanche Center, um, Weather Bureau, NOAA, mm-hmm. Weather Underground, and sometimes Weather.com. The, um, yeah. Billy, can you talk a little bit about your house and, and how you get your energy and your garden? Um, the, 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 the house was built in 1980, the first eight years I lived in that old shack, which was nothing. I mean, it was just an old building, no insulation. So it was very easy to picture, just picture something that if it was in your neighborhood, your neighbors would be complaining and calling the city that it was such an eyesore. Uh, And you'd be embarrassed to store your firewood in it. (laughs) Uh, This place was built in 1980 with me and two friends. Uh, This was the house I added on since then. Uh, two other rooms, but it was um, 1,200 square feet, or 1,100 really. Um, uh, And then I added on uh, a a room in the back for watching movies because I I like to do that every night. And then the greenhouse, which I built too big, my aspirations far uh, were far greater than... um, what I needed or what I was able to do with it. Uh, so I turned it into my workshop as well. Um, do you, and do you have fresh veggies all winter? Greens. greens. What I found out was a lot of, a lot of stuff I tried growing and I tried growing everything just doesn't work in short day length, hmm. uh, you know, and limited. Well, it gets sun in the winter cause the sun is low, but, it just it just took too long, and I got very little out of it. Greens, however, which are the hardest thing to ski in, because if you're skiing in on a cold day, they condense and they wilt and they freeze. I grow a lot of different types of greens: spinach, lettuce, uh, uh, um, beet greens, uh, um, kale, choy, kale, yeah, and cho- uh, what's it called? I just started it this year. Chorabi, hmm. something I forget. I, I know what it is, but uh, so a lot of greens and tomatoes grow really well, which is nice. And potatoes, which I never even planted, they came up in my compost, so <laughs> they grow. And um, uh, mint, a lot of mint because it grows 
all over the place. And I, I put it in tea all the time. Mm. And you have a little drip irrigation system out there? Yeah, I, uh, I don't use it much, though. It turns out that was made because I assumed I was going to use that whole thing as a garden. Now, instead, I just get a hose with a sprayer at the end of it, and I water as needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's just as easy. And oh, how- asparagus. That's what I have, asparagus. Oh, nice. How do you get your water in the wintertime? Back where the shack was, remember it was an old mining shack, they had made a spring. There was water that came up naturally and they developed it. And I didn't know that until I dug it out to put a water line in it. And there were these posts, Hmm. these old railroad ties surrounding one end of it. So uh, I ran a line. I used to get it just by dipping into it, but I ran a line underground from that spring into this house. So uh, at first... I just ran the water through it all the time, ran it out, ran it right back into the same stream and let it run all the time. And when I needed water, I shut off that line and opened up the house line. The problem with that is it ran the water all the time uh, and it, and, and it, the line laid on the surface of the ground. So I eventually, God, probably 20 years ago now, 15 years or more ago, uh, I got a ditch witch and dug a dig deep trench, put a water line into the spring mm. and it runs into the house here. And um, I use that. The advantage of that is it comes out right in the spring and there's a, a gravity feed. So I don't need a pump. The gravity feed, however, only works to the upstairs. And in order to take a shower, I do need to put a pump onto it to get the pressure to shower. Otherwise it just dribbles out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting thing about that is I've never had any problem with the water until about six years ago. And for three winters in a row, we didn't get enough snow early in the year to insulate the ground and it froze. And I had to ski water uh, a gallon, tw- two gallons a day, a gallon at a time, every day, all winter long for three years from down uh, at the lab mm-hmm. um, because I didn't have the snow cover. Uh, even though the water line was pretty deep. So that was a personal effect of uh, a change in the climate, I guess. Now what I do is like last winter, um, it is bare ground. uh, I'll let it drip a bit, not drip, but drizzle. Mm -hmm. uh, So it'll run all winter and not freeze up. But that's the water, and I have it tested regularly. Uh, We have cows two months a year, and it's fenced out, but I just want to make sure. Sure. so and then uh, you had the the water or the generators in the stream for a while and and now you have for like 30 years Mm -hmm. i mean i loved it i loved working in the river i loved dealing with it but it 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 involved moving a lot of rocks and gravel because every spring in the runoff it would just fill everything in it just got to be too difficult Mm -hmm. and you know i got i broke a bone bruised a kidney smashed my hand a number of times um and at this point in my life, I can't, I just can't do it anymore mm-hmm. without, you know, risking my back and stuff. So, but for a long time, you know, it would generate power. I had windmills, but they kept getting affected by lightning. It would fry all my equipment. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm done. No more. So now a big solar array. Yeah. I have, a, uh, yeah, I have no power issues at all. I mean, two winters ago with that heavy, dense snow in January, the lab, which is on Gunnison County Electric, lost power eight different days, and I never lost it. I mean, 
the sun comes up and charges the batteries. Sun doesn't come up, I use the batteries. Right. Works great. That's awesome. Billy, uh, could you talk a little bit about cricket? Ah, uh, <laughs> how many days do you have? We can talk <laughs> as if it was a test, a one day or a T20. <laughs> um, I watch a lot of movies and I watch a lot of movies from India. And I knew nothing about cricket at all, but they mentioned it a lot in the movies. And I was curious, so I started looking into it. And it turns out that um, I could get um, feeds from the Caribbean, which is one of the prime... Uh, Caribbean's not a nation, their own individual nations, but they play together as one unit. So um, I started watching cricket from um, the West Indies and... Uh, I started learning about the game, and I really, really enjoyed it. And then one summer, we had a, 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 a woman from Australia who was here, and um, uh, a guy from New Zealand, or who had done spent time in New Zealand. So the three of us started playing it just for fun, and then other people joined in, and then we started playing more. And in two thousand. Uh, well, 2011, we started it more organized. And in 2015, we started our own league because we had enough people interested in it. Uh, there's so much about the, the sport I like. I didn't leave this country for 40 years. And then three years in a row, I went down to the West Indies mm. to watch international cricket. The uh, United States cricket is taking off in the last year or two. So I've uh, traveled around uh, three years uh, to um, Arizona, Texas, and Cal and, and Los Angeles to watch uh, cricket in the United States. I didn't go last year because I I don't like to travel, and and now I can watch a lot. I can I watch every day on the internet. Mm. I subscribe to these uh, networks, and um, I really like it. It's just there's so much about the sport I I enjoy. Um, uh, do you want to know what it is? Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, first of all, it's 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 the, it's based upon the concept that you're going to be honest. You know, the whole terminology: someone does something wrong, that's just not good cricket. And it comes from the fact that cricket is a game, at least as it was originated. It's it's a big sport worldwide now. So now there's a lot of money. So now they leave it up to the umpires, usually to call things. I mean, I saw somebody just last week uh, who made a diving catch and just came up and said, no, I didn't catch it. Ball hit the ground. Hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's the idea of it. But I like that. I like that it was based upon that. I like that um, um, you don't have to be big and strong and hit home runs. If you hit a ball on the ground, just direct it properly to the boundary, you get four runs. If you hit it over the boundary in the air, you get six. But you also get out more hitting it in the air. So people who are maybe not huge, um, but uh, who who can direct the ball well, do just as well as you know uh, uh, other people who can who are a lot bigger and stronger. Um, there's no foul ball, so there's a lot of strategy. Batters can hit it anywhere they want, so you have to adjust the way you field. Um, you have to adjust the way you bowl. Uh, if there's a bowler who's going to bowl a spinner that's going to go spin and go outwards, 
the batter is not going to be able very easily to turn on it and hit it to their left. So they adjust the field that way. If the bowler, however, throws it wrong, then the batter's got a good open field on the left and they can just turn and, and, and hit on it. There's a lot, it's like chess. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of strategy involved. Um, How many people are in the Gothic Cricket, is it the Gothic Cricket League? Yeah, we're Gothic Cricket Club and then we make leagues. We've had, you only have 11 people playing it at any one time, but because we play on such a terrible field, you can put as many as you want because you can't run around like in a real field. We've had 30 people playing at one time. Uh -huh. We've had, we had um, probably 40, uh, 40, 40, 45 people playing each summer. And, you know, and it's not, it's it's not it's disorganized. No one knows how to play the game hardly, uh, but um, they learn. Does that That's frustrate you? No, no, no. It's learning. Yeah. I get to teach people the rules, and I can make up ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I actually know the rules, but and uh, and it's fun. It's fun to see people get into it. It's a game that you can play with people who are athletic or people who aren't. It's mm -hmm. fun to watch people who played baseball in college waffle at the ball because they're not used to hitting some but used to hitting a ball that bounces off the ground and comes up at them mm -hmm. whereas women who played field hockey or tennis are used to hitting a ball off the ground uh so you know uh anybody can play um and it's 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 fun it's 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 a, a non-contact sport you can you know you don't throw like even in baseball, you throw it to somebody with a glove who whacks their base runner or tags them out or someone slides into someone with their spikes or barrels into the catcher or something. Here, you throw at the stumps. You don't throw at the batter. You mm -hmm. have to hit the stumps, which are these three uh, posts sticking up, before the runner crosses the line. The runner may be yards away from even where the posts are. Um, it it's a game that has a aura of gentility to it and these days in this world you know it's nice to not some watch something or play something where you're not bashing somebody over the head with it and um, it's played throughout the world there's a lot of t cricket in the united states you have to look for it mm -hmm. there's Co colorado cricket league has i don't know 15 teams all wow. along the east slope and they play two forms of cricket um and they play really good cricket uh, the, there's a new organization that took over U.S. cricket, uh, USA cricket, that has done wonders with United States cricket. They're, they've done a really, really good job. Um, uh, the U.S. cricket team is playing down the Caribbean now, and they're in the Division Three tournament. Pretty in in uh, when is that? I think it's it's pretty soon. I think it's in late November. Mm. I went to that a couple of years ago in L.A., um, which they won. That was Division Four. They won that and moved up to Division Three, and since then they've stayed in Division Three. It works similar to soccer, where if you're one of the bottom two teams, you drop to Division Four. One of the top two goes to Division Two. The difference between Division One and Division Three, however, is a different world. Mm. Division One is your India, England, uh, Australia, uh, um, countries that have had a rich a history. Long, yeah, West Indies, yeah. Uh, uh, Sri Lanka. Um, South Africa, uh, Pakistan. Uh, Division two is more like Afghanistan, Scotland, um, Ireland, 
And then Division Three is United States, uh, Oman, uh, I don't know who, or Canada. Canada is actually pretty good. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's played widespread in the United States. I'd say the hub would be uh, San Francisco, L.A., Houston, um, Florida, and uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of cricket. Um, there's cricket in Indiana and uh, Maryland, uh, mostly from people whose family heritage is West Indies, India, or Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's widespread in the United States. I mean, Colorado has a big cricket league. Arizona has a, a, mm-hmm. a, a big cricket league. Probably every state has some. Mm-hmm. So maybe Wyoming. Well, that's a pretty cool interest. That's that's one that you don't come across every day. Well, depends where you are. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I really like it. I just there's a lot about the the, the sport that I like. Um, just the strategy uh, and just the way it's played and how it's played and and everything else. You know. Well, Billy, uh, you mentioned your website earlier. I was wondering if you could just circle back around and tell our listeners how they could find your website and, and see some of that weather data. Yeah, um, the website is Gothic Weather, or G-O-T-H-I-C-W-X, the abbreviation for weather, .org. And on there is a lot of the summaries of the weather data I have. Uh, uh, snow by month, every month since the mid-'70s, water every month. Uh, uh, and then monthly summaries so that you can just look at January and, and you know, each month individually. The records, the number of records in each winter from then and what, what the records are. Um, uh, a lot of other things um, that are on there. And, and, and most, well, the main, the main thing is the, the homepage, which is the current weather. What's going on today and what's going on this winter. Every Saturday night starting in November, I compare this winter to the previous winters, which is how I got started on this, doing mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Just saying this winter has this much on the ground. The average was this, the lowest was this, the highest was this, and so on. Um, so there's all that. The raw data is not on there. I have around 12,500 records that I couldn't get on there. Uh, I have a lot more I would like to get on there eventually when I have time. Um, I have a live camera feed, uh, and I will soon have two of them uh, of the area. So if somebody wanted to see what was going on out here, they just click on that, and it links to a YouTube camera. Mm. It's not directly from the camera. You can't control it because it's in my server, and people can't go in there because sure. then they could get in my computer and... and uh, Find out all. Of well, find Barr's out what secret. I really do all over there. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, so um, I like it. It's a lot of work, um, uh, but I think it's got interesting information if you're interested in weather, uh, or if you know you just want to know or see what's going on in one particular location. Um, and I update it all day long, but at the minimum, 
when I do my weather data, which is sunrise and sunset, but usually I'll update it about six to ten times over the course of the day. Mm-hmm. And um, that's pretty much it. Well, Billy, thank you for doing what you've done for the last 45 years here. and Watching movies? <laughs> I'm good at that. I mean, well, all the weather collection. Yeah. And, and um, you live in an amazing place, and I, I know the roots run deep for you here. And um, So I also want to thank you for taking the time today to sit down and, and talk to us and, and share your story. Sure. Well, my pleasure. I mean. Yeah, anytime you want to talk about me, just. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, cheers, Billy. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Billy. I appreciate the time you took to sit down and chat with me. I hope you all enjoyed the interview. You can check out some links to other interviews, a film, and articles about Billy's life and work in the show notes. Many thanks to you, the listeners of the podcast, for your continued support. You can help the show by following us on the socials and rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you've found it. Thanks to the sponsors of the show, TAS Gazex, a company of MND, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. Mike T provides our logo. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. The entry musical track today was Getting It by So Down. And what you're hearing now is Afternoon Soul by Grammatic. Music was made possible through the generous permission of the artists. How is it already June? Crazy. Listen to me next time on June 15th for our final episode of this season. Till then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.